For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, it's Aaron. As a listener to this podcast, you may have a very specific problem in your life that you don't have enough time to sit and read all the great long-form articles we talk about on the show and post on longform.org. If that's you and you have an iPhone, you need to check out Autumn. That's A-U-D-M, Autumn. It lets you listen to long-form feature articles from publications like The Atlantic, Esquire, the New York Review of Books, and relevant to this very episode, Wired and Back Channel, where my guest Stephen Levy's work appears regularly. So download the Autumn app and start your free trial today. And by the way, if you like listening and sign up, you'll get a 30% discount by going to autumn.com slash longform. That's A-U-D-M dot com slash longform. Thank you, Autumn. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Today we are scattered to the winds, but I believe I have Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky on the line. Hello. It's us. Hey, you guys. Aaron, where are you? You guys, wherever you are, you're close to my heart. I'm in North Carolina uh, uh, on an on a island beach. Are you ever coming home? Probably not. I figured out this like way where you can um, sit in the surf. And the surf comes over you, and you just keep moving your chair uh, relative to the tide coming up. You know. <laughs> wow, man, that sounds like an amazing science project. So then, for what is uh, maybe your last podcast interview? Who did you have on the show, Aaron? Uh, on the show this week, I talked to Stephen Levy, who is a veteran technology reporter. Uh, basically, has been reporting on computers as long as you can buy a computer uh, as a civilian, at least. Uh, since the price went below about ten thousand uh, dollars for a computer, I think uh, Stephen has been reporting on it. Um, he most recently has been with Back Channel, uh, which was first part of Medium and is now part of Wired, which is an interesting story in its own right. So uh, this is a person who has really interesting stories dating back to the very beginning. Uh, great conversation. So basically, like uh, he has seen the world change. He has seen the world change and had intimate. Uh, back channel uh, communications with a lot of the people who changed it. Uh, I, it's a, this is one of those ones like I can't believe we haven't had him on. It's uh, it's overdue. Uh, it was excellent. Um, how about sponsors this week? Aaron, you know, Evan and I uh, will be uh, in a beautiful locale of our own on Labor Day because we're going to the Decatur Book Festival. Yeah. You guys going to try and get some um, beach chairs and get them in the surf while you're down there? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not sure there's a ton of surf in Atlanta. <laughs> is uh, is uh, is there is there a beach somewhere near there? No, no, there's not. No, okay. <laughs> As I've said before, I'm not familiar with the American South. <laughs> Evan and I and a uh, group of fantastic authors are going to the Decatur Book Festival. It is part of Read This Summer, which is a uh, reading program we are doing with our dear friends at MailChimp. You can go to readthissummer.com, learn all about it, read some great books. A lot of the people who uh, are coming with us have been on this very show, and we're looking forward to it. And if you're anywhere in the vicinity of the book festival or of Atlanta, you should come. It's my hometown uh, we have an incredible lineup of authors, and uh, it's just an amazing event. So get there if you are in the South or just want to come check it out. Thanks, as always, to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Stephen Levy. Welcome, Stephen Levy. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was trying to figure out if you have been the technology journalist I have followed for the longest or if anyone has been doing this for longer than you. When did you become involved with reporting on technology? I think I did my first technology story. I started it in 1982, and it was a story about hackers. What interested you in hackers, and how did you even hear about hackers in 1982? I got, it wasn't exactly an assignment, it was a suggestion from this woman named Susan Line, who used to be my wife's editor at The Village Voice. And she was working for Jane Fonda. And they had the scheme that they would go to magazine writers and ask them to do stories on topics that they would suggest. And they would pre-option it. Mm. So she asked me if I would be interested in writing about these people called computer hackers. I'd never touched the computer before. So this means that the James Fonda people were considering making a movie about hackers starring yeah. Jane Fonda? Yeah. Susan had run into this woman named John V.F. Cerf, who was a computer science professor at Columbia. And she told Susan about these people who hung out in the computer center, these weird people. Yeah. And so they thought, gee, this is an interesting subculture. Maybe we could do a movie about it there. And at the time, the only thing written about computer hackers, per se, was this article I read in Psychology Today, which described them as really sick, lonely people. They were all losers, and uh, they would be alone in their rooms, banging on a keyboard and eating potato chips. Uh, not the kind of people you'd want to meet. But I went to California, and I came across these amazing people. They were really funny, fascinating people who had their pulse on the future. Yeah. And what's more, they were sort of a rebel culture. And I had grown up in the 60s, so I really identified with that. And I thought, this is really something, and I really want to write about these people a lot more. You were part of Whole Earth Catalog at one point? Yeah. So as I started getting into this world, uh, I connected with that little group in Sausalito. Uh, and at the time, they were preparing what would be known as the Whole Earth Software Catalog. And I would hang out with those people. And then when my book Hackers came out, uh, Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly, who was editing this magazine, Coevolution Quarterly, that became the Whole Earth Review. They really loved the book and decided to have a conference based on all the characters of my book. Yeah. And, and that was my book party, this amazing event in this abandoned army base in the headlands in Marin County, where all these generations of hackers showed up. What was it like in that period trying to 
describe what was is like a deeply technical jargony world to people who might not even know what a computer was well it was exciting i mean if people would open the article i think they would get a lot out of it because I wasn't a technical person. I was an English major. Yeah. So I would have to break it down when I talked to these people about what we were talking about. But the story really wasn't in the code. The story was in the revolution and how these people, these outliers, were going to change our world there. So from a storytelling perspective, it was amazing. So you do the hacker story and then you've kind of like slowly worming your way and like did a lots of story ideas spinning off of it come to you after that? Yeah. So once I, I did the story, it's called Hackers in Paradise and Rolling Stone. People started coming to me saying, oh, here's like a quote, real writer who knows about this stuff. Yeah. So I would get an assignments from the world that I was in, which was the magazine world. And also these computer magazines were starting to explode and they were transitioning from hobbyist magazines to more professional magazines as money was pouring in. You know, the IBM PC had just come out and there was advertising. So they wanted to hire some, quote, real writers. So I actually wound up doing a column for one of those magazines called Popular Computing, as well as actually starting a column in Rolling Stone about technology. At what point did the stuff you were covering become less cultural in the sense that, in the sense that I think of hacking as kind of a culture and at what point did business become a big part of the story? Well, business was sticking its nose under the tent, so to speak, <laughs> you know, from from that period on. Right? Yeah. You know, you know, so it was just after the IBM PC, and then yeah. and there was Apple, and of course, as a '60s person, I identified with the Apple guys, right? Yeah. And did you buy it? Like when when Apple sort of presented itself in this like sandals on the beach way, were you skeptical of that? Or does the minute that... the minute I got back from California researching the first story, I said to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, "We have to get Apple computers." Now, flash back to that time, the big controversy among writers of my cohort, people writing for magazines in New York City, was, "Gee, should I switch my electric typewriter?" for this thing called the electronic typewriter or get one of these weird things where you have a television set on your desk. Yeah. And it was like a big debate about should you even embrace the future to get this electronic typewriter that remembered one line of text. Right. And you could edit that. Right. And so the majority of the people who are covering computers might not have owned a computer at that point. Well, if you were covering computers, you know, yeah. you, you would be onto it. But I was the first in my little group yeah. to actually say, you know, we're getting an Apple computer. So we bought two Apple computers. That's a significant expense at that time. It was right? like 9000 bucks for <laughs> two Apple computers. We shared a printer and yet got these two hard disks and you had these little monitors with the glowing green letters. Yeah. Right. We had to pay a consultant, someone to teach us how to use it because it was really complicated. And you had to use this extra little circuit board put in the Apple computer called you know, like a Z80 card. It was the first Microsoft product I bought to run this pro- word processor called WordStar. But it, it was transformational. I mean, yeah, we had Apple computers. Did it change how you thought about it as a journalist when you yourself became a consumer of, of the product? Well, I, I gave a lot of thought to the way it might have changed writing. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, on that. And as I got into that culture more, uh, I sort of went native to a certain degree. But it was interesting because when I was in Silicon Valley spending time with these people there, and you know, at that time, 
there was very little boundaries that a journalist had to leap over in order to get access to you know, anyone in that in, in that world because you know people didn't want to talk to them too much. You know, maybe someone in the Wall Street Journal would want to talk to Bill Gates or something like that. Yeah. But if you came from Rolling Stone, you know, or even popular computing, they, they would, you know, just roll off the red carpet. Come on in. You know, when I, when I first went to Microsoft it's in 1984, I went to Seattle just to see what was going on there. And they said, yeah, come on, spend the day. And, you know, and I just spent hours in Bill Gates's office just wrapping with him. At what point did that change? At what point did you start having to go through publicists and, and, and did that sort of secrecy creep into the technology industry? Well, I guess it it was a creeping situation. So through yeah. the 80s, you know, the public relations industry worked their way in there. And yeah. actually it was Microsoft that had this public relations agency, which sort of began the practice of wanting to have a journalist in the room, or excuse me, they had the practice of wanting to have a PR person in the room. Journalist optional, definitely the PR person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So before, you know, when I did that first interview with Bill Gates, there was no PR person. He was just sitting there, you know, squunched up on the couch and shaking his, his leg and talking away. And there, there wasn't a PR person, you know, I can, you know, 500 feet. But then they started saying, well, we have to be in the room. And then they would make these elaborate reports there and bill hours, right? And other companies picked that up. And now even lowly startups have PR people uh, who want to be in the room when you're talking to their founders. That idea that the story of technology would be not the shell, but be Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I'm interested in how you thought about covering the personalities of the people behind the technology versus the technology itself at that point. Well, I'm always interested in the people. Yeah. You know, to me, it was always about you understand the technology through the people. So, you know, I would never say, here's the story of the Z80 chip. Uh, (laughs) It would be, you know, here's the story of Bill Gates or here's the story of Charles Simone, the guy who invented Microsoft Word, or here's the story of Steve Wozniak, because this is this is all about humanity. Right. I mean, you know, these without people, these are just hunks of sand. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Aaron and Steven on hold for just a second. Tell you about some sponsors that are making today's show possible. And this first sponsor, it's Rover is actually a service that is genuinely solving problems for me. Here's the thing that happened to me. I recently went on a trip, and uh, I've got a dog. Her name is Reba. She's uh, fat and lovable and um, very well-behaved. And she has a friend, this woman who lived on our old block, and this woman always takes Reba when we go out of town, except this trip, uh, she couldn't. At the last minute, she couldn't, and I was uh, hosed. I needed a place to take my dog, and that is what Rover does. Rover is the nation's largest network of five-star pet sitters and dog walkers. Through Rover, pet parents like myself can discover, book, and manage personalized care for their dogs, including pet sitting, dog walking, and in-home dog boarding. You can get someone to come to your house last minute. They can just uh, show up and here's who's going to come to your house. Five-star pet sitters. That is right. Approved pet sitters. Your dog deserves the best, and only 20% of sitters who begin their profiles are ultimately accepted to become Rover pet sitters. They've got an easy-to-use iOS and Android app. You can search, book, favorite, pay, 
all through Rover's convenient app, and they've got uh, free meet and greets. So you can meet this person who's going to take care of your lovable pooch. Thanks to Rover, if you need professional, kind, caring pet sitters, but you don't want to spend a lot of time looking, you can go to rover.com slash longform and use the offer code longform. You're going to get 25 bucks off your first booking. Again, that's rover.com slash longform and the promo code longform. Go check it out. It's uh, it's a great service. It made Reba happy. It made me happy. It'll make you happy. You know what else will make you happy? Learning a foreign language. And that's why you should try Babbel the number one selling language learning app in the world. Maybe you want to try and learn a language for an upcoming trip, or maybe you want to talk to friends or family. Maybe you met someone recently and you had a real connection, but you just can't uh, talk to them in the way that you would like. That is where Babbel comes in. You can uh, learn a foreign language quickly, easily, and have real-life conversations in that language, all from your desktop, smartphone, and tablet. It is a digital service. You can do it on your own time. There's no classes. The interactive technology is so effective, you'll actually remember what you learn. And with short, convenient 10 to 15-minute lessons, you can learn where you are and whenever you have time. So here's what I recommend uh, that you do. Long-form listeners can get three months of Babbel free when you sign up for three months at babbel.com slash longform and use the offer code longform. Again, that's Babbel. B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash longform and use the offer code longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Stephen and Aaron. So as the money started just becoming crazy, I mean, there's a period in the 80s where just the market caps of these companies start becoming some of the biggest companies in America. And well, during the eighties, like we, what we thought was an impressive market cap back then. Right. is a real yawner now. (laughs) (laughs) After you had established yourself in that world, what was it like when that world like changed a bunch for the first time? What was the first time you felt like, Oh wow, we're in like a new era of tech reporting. Well, that's the first corner. The first boom, the PC boom took place actually as I was, finding my footing in that yep. world. So in the, the early days, there was this conference called Comdex that at the time was the biggest computer conference you can imagine. It's what CES is now. And every year it would become more lavish as money was poured into it and the yep. money became dumber, right? So, you know, we would, I remember I wrote a column for Rolling Stone just about the satiriconish aspect of, the money being poured in there and these yep. you know, insane parties uh, that people would throw. And it, it was out of hand there. So and when I wrote Hackers, really, one big concern of mine was how money is going to change this relatively pure pursuit of hacking. I, mean, I don't mean breaking into computers, but you know, creative programming. Sure. Right? Doing things that people couldn't imagine you do. I mean, the early hackers, what I found was they were the ones that did things you weren't supposed to do on computers and wound up by doing that, inventing things like word processing, spreadsheets. So that money thing happened in the early 80s. And then there was sort of a pullback as some of that was optimistic money. So through the time I've been covering this, there have been ebbs and flows in terms of the money coming in. And, you know, likewise, the interest from editors about it, right? You know, there's a... As the money wasn't coming in so much, and the editors thought, well, we could devote fewer pages to this. But 
the technology itself kept getting more interesting and more powerful when a pretty straight line up, right? So where the money was had only you know, a cursory relationship to the growth and impact of the technology. So you described that hacking as kind of a pure pursuit. And now you're covering people like Mark Zuckerberg who make hacking part of the corporate ethos of a huge publicly traded company. How does it feel having that sort of narrative replayed across generations? And I'm just curious, like not that many people knew the first generation of hackers that are now being sort of used in the uh, philosophies of present day startups. Yeah, well, to me, when I actually started pursuing hacking and hackers in a book, yeah. I came across you know people who you know, really made their mark well before I I was on the scene. Uh, and they were the MIT hackers of the late 1950s and early 1960s. And they literally were the first hackers, the first people who used computers and call themselves hackers. Yeah. And they were the ones who invented word processing and really established what I called uh, the hacker ethic. And so it's sort of interesting because they really felt it was this sacred pursuit. Yeah. And when I did my book in 1984, I was worried that, you know, wow, money is going to change that. But actually what happened was sort of interesting that, you know, these other generations came along and they sort of kept some of the spirit of hacking in terms of the creativity and, you know, they wanted to change the world, but it was okay to be rich by doing it. Music has a, you know, a similar evolution in sort of do-it-yourself music where right. uh, like the idea of selling out just is not a major topic in music. now. Right. And I, and I remember that it wasn't always that way. I mean, you know, around that time, I did a story for Rolling Stone in 1983 about MTV. It was yeah. the first really big story about MTV that Rolling yeah. Stone ever ran. It's giant cover story. And I was brutal about how they're all selling out, these musicians. And what you look like is more important than what the way the music sounds. Yeah. And I was outraged there. Do you think that there was someone having that same reaction when Rolling Stone launched that, like, you know, the rock underground is being put into a... Uh, to a trade magazine. You know? Well, when Rolling Stone launched, and I, I was an avid consumer of it. I mean, I yeah. idolized Rolling Stone yeah. when I was in college. And, you know, the, the magazine was, was pretty straightforward on the side yeah. of the musicians. And, you know, they really didn't get that criticism until later on when it became a little more part of the establishment and, you know, can then move to New York. And How did you go from being a teenager who idolized Rolling Stone to working at Rolling Stone? What was that path that took you there? It was a little tortured. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, when I when I was in college, uh, I went to Temple University. I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Yeah. And, uh, when I graduated, I took the course of least resistance. I, I was an English major, so I went to graduate school in English. And, you know, I, I liked writing, but never thought I would be able to make a living at it. So I thought I would be like an English professor and maybe write on the side or something like that. And uh, when I got to graduate school, I realized that that wasn't for me. I wasn't cut out to be a scholar, and they recognized that pretty quickly, too. So I did hang in for a master's. Then I went back to my hometown of Philadelphia and figured, well, I, I might as well try to be a writer and started writing for alternative weeklies. It was sort of on the borderline of underground and alternative and tried to teach myself to write as I went. How did that go? 
actually, it went amazingly well when I look back on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, I, I came, I remember driving back from State College, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, and I had this idea. I love Bruce Springsteen, and uh, he was very big in Philadelphia. But the people at Philadelphia Magazine, which was the premier journalistic outlet in Philadelphia at that time, uh, they'd never run a story on him. So I thought, I'm going to write a story about Bruce Springsteen for Philadelphia Magazine. But of course, I never written a magazine story. I you know, never written professionally. Yeah. So I that next few months, I sort of worked my way into that. I was wrote for this underground paper called The Drummer. And I did a profile of one of the writers of Philadelphia Magazine. And so wow, you're working the long game. I, I, I totally was. And after I finished it, I asked him to introduce me to an editor and he did. And I, and I pitched my story and he said, this guy, who's this guy? You know, is he Jewish? <laughs> and so I said, he's, he's huge. He's huge. And he gave me the assignment for a hundred dollars to write a story about Bruce Springsteen. And this is the spring, early summer, maybe of 1975. So we're talking about like, Darkness on the Edge of Town, Bruce No, 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 late, late, much earlier. He's recording Born to Run. Uh, he has yet to appear in Time and Newsweek. And as a matter of fact, Born to Run is way overdue, and he's not talking to the press. And that's a big problem for me. Yeah. Because this is like my breakthrough, right? Yeah. You know, if I don't get this interview, I'm dead. This yeah. is career's over. Yeah. So I have to figure out how to talk to Bruce Springsteen when he's not doing interviews. How'd you do it? I had a friend who went to the same gym as Clarence Clevens. <laughs> and we concocted the scheme. He would invite Clarence over. He would invite me over. We'd get to know each other. And I would ask Clarence to set me up with Bruce. And that happened. And he gave me Bruce's address. and said, come at this time. It's some address, address in some cottage in you know this little beach town, Long Branch, New Jersey. And I drove my little Volkswagen up there and knocked on the door at the appointed time. And Bruce Springsteen, of course, knew nothing about this. And he sees me standing on his doorstep, and I'm, I've got this big, heavy tape recorder, right? And I'm ready to go. I've been a journalist for like two months. And he sees me sort of melt on his step, and he figures, this guy is so pathetic. And he says, well, let's just take a walk and get a hot dog. So we walk around, and he explains why he can't give an interview, which is as good as an interview, right? Yeah. And I'm able to write the story. What did he, why did he say he couldn't give an interview? I'm so late on this album. You know, I'm the pressure, blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, and the other thing is when I looked in his living room, we, when I stepped in there, thing, I saw a Roger Thesaurus on the, on the table. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my little insight in, in, into the boss. <laughs> um, that's an interesting story about access um, and the importance of access. As you started covering these tech companies and as the access became more restrictive so you're asking for these meetings rather than just sort of falling into them when's the first time you remember writing something negative about a company or a product and it sort of coming back to you in an angry way or how did you start navigating that like knowing that what you wrote could restrict your access well i mean even when i was writing for popular computing you know i was bringing values from like New York journalism into this technical thing, right? And I, I did a story, uh, it was actually a, re a long review, like a story yeah. of the IBM PC Junior, which was supposedly touted as a competition to this secretive computer that Apple was working on called the Macintosh. And 
IBM was you know, introducing with great fanfare, and I thought it was a piece of crap. And I wrote a, a, a big story about it, and I said it has the smell of death about it. And IBM went insane. You know, they yeah, they threatened to pull their advertising. And they went crazy because yeah. like people didn't review computers that way. Mm. And then when I did the story about the Macintosh for Rolling Stone, that was not a puff piece. I stumbled on the big controversy where Steve Jobs threw out the like inventor of the Macintosh. And you know, and the guy was like furious and wrote all these memos about how they should fire Steve Jobs. And I had the memos. Yeah. Right. And um, interestingly, Steve did not hold that against me. For some reason, you know, he was mad at Jan, but he never confronted me about that, which was interesting. Did you have like sources working within these companies who were feeding you like, hey, there's some interesting stuff going on up top? Yeah, yeah. It's a very tight culture there in Silicon Valley. And yeah. a lot of people know a lot of things. So in some ways, you know, maybe there's too thin a line between journalists and participants there, right? You know, everyone say. goes to the same parties. And that's like as true now as it ever was. Yeah. And uh, so you you hear stuff. You were living in New York this I, whole time. Yeah, I, was n- I never actually lived out there in Silicon Valley. Were you tempted? I mean, were you worried like, oh, the, a guy who's living in Palo Alto is going to eat my lunch because he's going to hear about all the stuff in the you know local coffee shop? Well, I mean, I always loved New York. And my wife really loves New York. Yeah. Uh, she wrote a, a book about it. Uh, so it really wasn't something I was going to do. I've spent a lot of time out there. Yeah. At various times, I actually would rent places and live on two coasts. So, and a lot of people in California are always surprised to find out to this day that I live in New York because they say, what? I always see you here. You describe kind of two forms of technology journalism there. There's what you were doing before, which is magazine-style profile writing um, or feature writing. And then you're also describing basically reviewing, saying, like, I tried their product, and this is what I think about it. What was it like to come to that, that sort of, like, forming of subjective opinions, which is sort of forbidden in the other kind of journalism? Reviewing was always something, you know, I would sometimes do. Yeah. Generally, when it was an important product, um, for many years, I did a column for Macworld magazine. And I'd say at the 12 months, maybe two of them, I would be reviewing a product. Yeah. But I think the way I write, and this is what I love about journalism, for the very first time I started writing for the drummer in Philadelphia, I loved the idea that there weren't these boundaries in long form. That you know, you didn't have to be the classic newspaper reporter and be objective. Objectivity is not part of long form journalism, really. Yep. You know, you, you have a point of view, and you know, you earn your point of view by what you report on. But once you get that from spending a lot of time with the people you're writing about and you know, and, and learning more about it, you make your points. Yeah. Right. And you make them as, as, as forcefully as, as you like. I think the key is not to make the points or get the points set in your head before you write the story. Mm. See, my number one rule of journalism is that any preconception you have about what a story is about before you actually do the research is never as interesting as the way it actually is. That's an interesting idea because of all the things to cover, I think technology is one of the most future looking. Like when you review a technology product, you're in some ways like predicting the future. You're saying like, 
this is going to work or not work based on what the future becomes. Like I was just reading you public or someone published a reminiscence recently of um, the first time the iPhone was unveiled. Yeah, that was and, probably me. Right? Yeah, it was you. I, I yeah, read right. that for Back Channel. Yeah, yeah. You were, you, and it was you, Pogue, Walt Mossberg, and yeah. ooh, and someone from yeah, USA Today. Yeah, from USA Today, yeah. And, I mean, obviously you don't know in, in history whether you're standing at like a major point or a totally mm. forgettable point, but it just struck me that to write about the iPhone, to write about the first iPhone, particularly when no one else in the world had even seen it, you have to make a kind of a bold prediction about the world. You have to say, I think the little in my hand computer is going to like be the future of the world or I think this is total nonsense. Forget about it. Tell me about like the challenges of that as a writer. Well, that, that thing in particular was the apotheosis, I thought, yeah. of, of that question, right? Yeah. Because it was the most eagerly anticipated product, probably in the whole time that I've been writing about technology. And if you got that wrong, people would still be talking. If you had been like, iPhone's going to flop, it's a failure, yeah, well, look, your whole remember, career would be. It's been the 50-year anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, yeah. and everyone dug out the negative review that Richard Goldstein wrote for the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. Right? And he was saying, well, I sort of defended it there, but, you know, he, but not really. Pauline Kael has a few like classic trashings also where you're just like, whoa. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. And so, and there were only four people who had it. Yeah. And, you know, you knew, you know, this was going to be a, a big deal. And, you know, and to me, I, I actually called it, you know, in his column I wrote back to you, this is the, the last product review. Yeah. Right. Just like my wife wrote about true crime for years and years. Yeah. And OJ was, that was it. Right? Yeah. After that, where do you go? Totally. And, you know, so for me in product reviewing that, you know, I, I guess I did some afterwards, but that was it. Right. You know, drop the mic if you get it right. And, you know, climb into a cave if you get it wrong. And, you know, fortunately, you know, in this 10th anniversary of, of that day, they dug up all our reviews and I could stand behind mine. It, yeah. it was OK. But no one could figure out that it was going to be as big as it was, of course. But all of us pretty much got it was transformational. I think what I'm proud that I got right was, well, this is really amazing. but it's really going to be more amazing if they open it up and let people write apps for it. Right. Like when you were considering that, you described that idea of like, don't have a preconceived idea of the story, like let it come to you. But, you know, at a music festival, it's clear how to let it come to you. You know, <laughs> walk around, talk to some people, listen to the bands, talk to the bands. When you're in this little isolated world of like a phone, how did you go? What was your method for reviewing? You just play with it and yeah, say what you think? Yeah, just use it. You, yeah. want, you want to use it in, in all sorts of different yeah. circumstances. Yeah. And just get a sense of it, right? You know, spend time with it. You know, I didn't sit there with a stopwatch and time it. Yeah. Um, you know, I could have used an hourglass for all the, for how quick it loaded some stuff uh, because the network was really slow there. But I don't know how much of a science there there is. Really? Um, you know, to me, what I really wanted to do, and, and when I do review products, I really don't consider myself a consumer reports kind of person. I try yeah. to give sort of the cultural aspect of it, really, you know, and, and to get into what it means as well as whether you should buy it or not. You know, I'm not like a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of guy. Well, I think one of the reasons that Apple has been sort of a consistent source of interest for writers, for bloggers or whatever, it's like Apple's just sort of inescapable and I, and I don't want to turn this all into like a, oh, so I'll talk about Steve Jobs for hours, but it seems like Steve Jobs' product design philosophy 
was about like himself as the use case about like that same kind of subjective response from himself it wasn't about going in front of a corporate board and saying what should we make next it was about scratching a personal itch and you know in the case, the experience you had of getting that first phone and getting to play with it it almost seemed like Steve Jobs was sort of using you as a proxy for himself you know it's like okay here's just one person a kind of a peer like let me test this thing that I've made based on my own whims and see how it, you know, translates. Yeah, we weren't, to if this else. thing was done. We weren't. We weren't testing it. Though we called every Not one testing, of us. Not testing. Just we called every it. one of us while yeah. we were testing. While we were testing it. Yeah. And you know, hounded us. You know, what, what do you think? What do you yeah. think? <laughs> what did you say? I tried to make it more of an interview. Mm. You know, I said, I said like, hey, Steve, people are calling this the Jesus phone. Like, what do you think of that? You know, and so. Um, is that uh, a technique you use is like turning things that are not supposed to be into interviews into kind of interviews? Well, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll respect, respect boundaries and, yeah. and things like that. But in this case, you know, he, he's asking me questions and I wanted to see you know, the answers to the questions there. I mean, that. that the, the basic thing of what we do is to ask people questions and it's surprisingly hard and it took me a surprisingly hard time to learn this but the best way to ask questions is to just ask the most direct possible question of what you want answered yeah how did you figure that out just thousands of questions gone by yeah yeah i mean that or you see i guess a, a couple times you know people would ask me questions uh, as a journalist, and you know, can they beat around the bush or things like that? And I said, just ask, ask the damn question, you know. <laughs> so, I don't know how long it's been since Steve Jobs died. I think we're talking about five years now, maybe six years. Six years. Um, I don't think that his death necessarily is the line in the sand in this, but there's kind of a pre and a post Steve Jobs era, at least in tech reporting, and the era after he died. I think technology became a lot more dominated by startups in terms of coverage. People became fascinated by startups and fascinated by kids raising millions and millions of dollars on the whim of an idea. And with it, a shift in the media that was covering it, the rise of things like TechCrunch that were sort of quasi-journalistic institutions. It's like a trade publication. Trade publications. Publications where a big part of their business model is throwing events that require the participation of the companies they cover. So how did your job shift during that period? Did you feel it shifting? Well, this is a pretty lucky situation for me. In 1995, I was doing this column for Macworld. Uh, I really wasn't writing much for Rolling Stone. I was writing books, mostly. And... I got an offer from Time Magazine, and they said, do you want to spend the amount of time you do writing your column for Macworld just doing maybe a story for us once a month? And I said, well, I write a column for Macworld. I'd like to do a column. Are you, are you interested in that? And I went in there, and I talked to the editor-in-chief, and, and he said, you know, I don't know. There's, it's pretty political to who we give columns to. The, I'd get a lot of crap if I gave a column to some outsider here and a friend of mine uh, Katie Hafner was working at Newsweek and she said don't go to time you know come here we'll give you a column you know and they had this monthly section called focus on technology and I got they said yeah come and write a column for our monthly section and I did uh, some work on contract with them and then they asked me uh, if I would write a story for them and I did and you know it turned out to be actually a surprisingly great place to write there was no restrictions on how to write and as a matter of fact they encouraged a writer's voice um and that just clicked so i eventually went to work there some months later 
And that was just as the internet boom was happening. So I got this front row seat from this amazing venue to start covering, you know, Netscape and Yahoo and Amazon and then Google when it started. So it was a, a pretty easy transition for me. Yeah. To go from writing about you know, Apple and Microsoft, both of which my reporting was really advanced because I'd known Steve Jobs and Bill Gates since the 80s, right? So it was natural for me to write a lot about him at Newsweek. And they said, great, here's a guy we know who's writing for Newsweek. We can get we can get covers. And then I just also, realized how great my cultural myopia was there. I was like, what was it like covering the dot-com boom? And you were like, I already covered a different dot-com boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was this was the, the big boom. This, yeah, this um, is the big boom. The second one's just an after, after and, and every week, and I mentioned before about pages, yeah. every week our section, we yeah. get more pages, more pages, more pages, more columns, more columns. Yeah. And then when the bust happened, we got less columns, less columns, less columns. <laughs> yeah. But the amazing thing was the technology was just getting me more and more interesting. It wasn't, you know... A, 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 the, the money flowing out yeah, didn't stop yeah, from being... Yeah, so the Wall Street took a dive, but the technology kept going. And I did the story, I it must have been in, um, you know, 2000, late 2001 or early 2002, about the return of Silicon Valley. And actually, it was, it was a little earlier, but it was totally right. I totally nailed that, you know, they'll be back, right? And, and this period just means that they're cooking up even better stuff. And you wrote a book about Google during yeah, some time in that period also. Well, the book about Google came out in 2011. 2011. I'm curious, like, is it hard to do a book with stuff moving so quickly? Like, when you conceived that Google book where you're like, oh, God, like, it's going to be outdated by the, the day it comes out? So I, I started the Google book literally the same month that I started at Wired. I took a buyout at Newsweek. We could talk about that. And went to Wired, which I'd been writing for since they started. I did yeah. a second cover story. Um, in 1993. So I, I loved Wired always. And you know, at that point, there had been a couple books about Google around the time it went public a yeah. few years earlier. But you know, it was so big and so important that I thought that there'd be a great book to write if I can get inside. Yeah. Um, you know, and I took a trip in 2007 with a bunch of Google young leaders, yep. know, their future leaders. It was run by Marissa Mayer. We went across the country, uh, the world actually. You know, they, she takes these young managers on a trip around the world. And I thought, boy, if I could write this story from the inside, it'd be great. So I just worked Google and convinced them to let me get access and you know talk to hundreds of people there and see stuff that other people didn't see. How do you write the book. how do you convince someone to let you do? I mean, what's the incentive? For them, they they, they think, think it's that they're they think they're complimentary. Good. They think they're good. Yeah, people are getting suspicious of them, thinking maybe they're not good. Yeah, and they feel if we let someone in, this person will see we're good. Yeah, and it'll be good for us. Right, and they're thinking he's not going to discover some bad secrets about us, or you know, like I guess I wonder, like, is it a gamble for them? Do you think doing a book like a, that? Of course, there is. of course yeah. it is. Yeah, I mean, so in this book in particular, there was a very long chapter. And to me, it was the moral center of the book about Google's experience in China. I remember reading this. I read the book and I'd say 2012. Yeah. And that's the part of the book that's actually stuck with me. Yeah. And it was like, you know, like a crucible for them. You know, like yeah. Their moral principles were put to the test there. Yeah. And first they failed it. And then 
helped along by a series of events, they did what morally I felt was the right thing. But there was a lot of twists and turns along the way. And, you know, one thing I found out, for instance, was that they, this had never been public, they had to fire one of their top people in China because, you know, she was giving bribes to Chinese officials. So it seems like the story of technology has been at various times a story about an outlaw culture and then a business story and is now increasingly a story about the media. You've been running back channel. So Backchannel was started as a publication at Medium? Yeah, yeah. So I worked for Wired full-time for six years. Yeah. And in 2014, I thought I would do something different and wanted to start my own publication, which I was, I had some issues with technology journalism in general, not from the way Wired did it, but just the whole field. It seemed to me there was all these stories that were the same and people would aggregate, quote, other people's stories, right? Someone would write a big story and then everyone else would write about that story. And, yep. and I thought, well, gee, maybe I'd like to see a technology news site where it only does the good stuff, right? And you know, low volume, high quality. But in order to do that, you couldn't really go off on your own and be a standalone. You'd have to link your star to something else and I'd read a lot about medium. Medium stories were coming up a lot yep. um, in my news feeds. And I thought, gee, it would be interesting to go to medium and start it there. And I knew Ev Williams, who was the CEO, and, and mentioned it to him. And he jumped on it. And I wound up starting Back Channel as which, a medium employee. Which was one of the first publications within media. Yeah, as I yeah. Recall. I think there was maybe two that launched. Yeah, they had, they had a couple others. They had a comics publication. Yeah. And then there was a publication of, you know, really weighty long form called Matter. Now, medium is in its own needs to raise money. You're taking Back Channels going back to wire. There's different shifts happening. Medium was very invested in the idea of having publications and getting people paid, and they've changed what they were doing many times. So I'm curious what it's like to sort of be in the story you're covering, which I think is true of a lot of people in the media right now. I mean, this right. is certainly the theme of the Trump presidency is the media is in the story now. Right. Well, in, in this instance, it was something that I, I wanted. I wanted to actually experience what life was like inside one of these internet startups. Right. You know, because, you know, even the ones that gave me access, you know, I'd be there, I'd hang out, and then, then I would leave. And yeah. then they'd have probably more interesting conversations. Did you, like, and, work out of the off the Medium office? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh. I, I was an employee of, of Medium. That's fascinating. It never occurred to me that, that, like, I always assumed you were, like, sitting at your, like, house on your laptop, and no, it was just, no, like, no, we, when it came to do it, you'd copy and paste into the Medium CMS, and that was kind of the link. No, no, we had a, a small New York office, but uh, I would spend a lot of time in the San Francisco office. Yeah. And uh, because it was an Internet startup, that you'd do things like you can imagine. They had a chef every Friday afternoon. They had this thing called the FAM, the Friday afternoon meeting, where, you know, Ev Williams would, and we'd present things and people would cheer. And you'd say, oh, we launched this. And uh, yeah. Ev Williams would answer questions from all of us. Yeah. And uh, it was the cool kids, right? Yeah. You know, and I, and I, it was, it was really exciting to, do that for two years. I, I wouldn't have traded that for anything. Was your sort of product reviewer, tech thinker hat on where you were kind of thinking, oh, you know, this move they're making, this this is going to work, this is a bad move? 
Well, there were there was a, like a, a little of that because you know things change really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it an internet at startup there, certainly right? faster than in a magazine well man it, it's like every few months there'd be like a drastic change yeah. so with our little publication group they would turn on a dime one day we were the darlings yeah. they were you know hire more people do this do that yeah. and the next week well you know what we think we're going to reorganize everything there yeah. i mean literally for one summer I was basically running back channel myself because they sort of you know, moved away from that. And then the pendulum swung the other way and they came back. Was that fun? Scary? I mean, I think that that's increasingly the fate of a lot of people who are trying to get into journalism or situations that's more like that than saying a contract that you'd get bought out of or something like that. As someone who had, had seen different eras in magazines, how, how is that like? Uh, move fast and break things as a work environment <laughs> to produce journalism. And well, obviously it, it can be frustrating, but you know, for me, I was lucky enough to be in a position where you know, I had other options. Right? Like, yeah. I could write books. I could you know, go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I'd be concerned about my staff, which was pretty small at the time. And when Ev did decide, he didn't want to be a publisher anymore. He liked to, he wanted to host publications. And we worked together to move the publication to Condé Nast. I was able to take my executive editor, uh, Sandra Upson, who's brilliant, you know, with me uh, to Condé Nast, and um, and then hire the woman who had replaced me at Wired, Jesse Hempel. So we were able to make that switch, yeah. You know, but yeah, you know, obviously, you know, it's dizzying when yep. these turns happen, and and I and I I think I could have told Ev. I think I probably did tell Ev, and like at one point, and saying, you know, you're wrong. You should keep banking on these publications. I mean, right now, where the medium is, back to sort of hiring journalists for quality content one by one. I don't know. I haven't talked to him. I don't know if he regrets letting go of the publications or not. Well, I think it's. I don't know how much trust people have or need in publishers nowadays, but there does seem to be a, a sort of a net effect where like if you change what you're doing too many times, like even as a reader where I'm kind of like, oh, they're just rearranging my house a little bit too much yeah. here. Like I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little skeptical of this. But I wonder for you as an editor and a writer, now that you're back at Condé Nast, does where you're publishing a story particularly matter in 2017? Like if most people are going to get this as a link in uh, Twitter or Facebook and they're going to click through and just start reading, like probably like I just read your story on um, Apple's headquarters. Right. And I don't know if I would have even noticed if that was like, I think it's in the Wired CMS. Yeah, yeah but that actually, it, that was not published on Back Channel. That was, was not a, published, exactly. A so Wired print story. So I, like, I, I, like, I didn't even know. I assumed actually that that was published on Back Channel, but that there was also a Wired link or yeah, something. Yeah. Does it even matter to you nowadays? Well, for Back Channel, it matters to me because Your I baby. founded the publication. <laughs> it means a lot. Yeah. And during all that time, um, I worked really hard at Medium despite the fluctuations, the back channel would be a consistent product. And yeah. I, I don't think people noticed, you know, that, oh, they have more resources, they have less resources. You yeah. Know, I'd like to think that we were pretty consistent there. Our new situation is that we live on the Wired website there. And realistically, I think some people will see that our story on, if it's featured on the front page, and they might not know this is a back channel story. We try to put some branding on it. I think that ultimately, though, it is important. I think, you know, where a story's from is super important. I think one reason why 
uh, we had that trouble with Facebook is that when you look at the news feed, things aren't distinguished that yeah. clearly between a publication you know and a publication you don't know. And that's why, quote, fake news, and you know, I'm using that term to pick you know, hoaxes, yeah. right? You know, the made up stories intended to deceive you. Um, that's why they get traction sometimes is because um, it doesn't look different than a story in the New York Times or Back Channel. Well, that seems to me like it's a... Um... You know, it's a little bit of what the real world is like as opposed to the world we imagine when we build technology that's going to that we're projecting into the future. There's that Ev idea of everyone's a publisher, like everyone's going to have their own blog and be publishing. And that did partially happen. Like he created a world with blogs. Well, it's still happening. I think their traffic is higher than it's ever been. Higher than ever. Exactly. But. The other in unintended consequence of everyone's a publisher, anyone can be a publisher, is the new Washington Times is yeah. indistinguishable from the Washington Post within those systems. Like self-publishing and fake news are flip sides of a human coin that have existed for a long time. And it, it does seem like we are reaping some of the human consequences of things we created idealistically as actually like unleashed. Um, I, I think that stuff is going to work itself out. I think, think that, so? yeah, totally. The, the technology will get better at recognizing it and people, I hope, will get fed up at being served stuff that isn't true. We're in kind of a dark place for technology right now. You know, uh, Travis Kalanick just resigned at Uber the A1 stories about technology in the New York Times as of late have not been positive stories. Right. Um, how do you report in that environment? I mean, it even seeps into your Apple story. You know, you have to say, hey, this is kind of an interesting time to be building a $5 billion mm -hmm. spaceship in the suburbs of California. Well, I'd the like to think I would have written that in, like, right. at, at any point. I think that this is about, again, it's about people. Yeah. Travis Kalanick's foibles aren't because you know, he's a technology executive. It's because he's Travis Kalanick. Yeah. You know, that's the way he is. And there is a certain strain in Silicon Valley which you know, rewards totally driven people. But that is humanity. And advanced technology is no guarantee. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it will do anything from stopping ill-intentioned people from doing ill-intentioned things. That said, I do think that there was an over-optimistic strain, mm. particularly in the early days of the internet, when people felt that it would solve all the problems, we'd all get together, and, and that giving everyone a voice was, was a great thing. And I think it's interesting. You know, I'm writing a book about Facebook now, oh, are you? and it's, it's been really interesting to watch the past few months as Facebook itself grapples with the idea that they have to be a little more nuanced about the idea of giving everyone a voice is a great thing in and of itself. Are you are you writing that book from within Facebook? I'm. They're cooperating, um, and so that means you spend a lot of time at the campus there. I go to the campus a lot. Yeah. What's your life like when you're immersed in something like that? Are you just thinking about Facebook all the time? Well, right now I have sort of two jobs. I'm, you know, right. <laughs> editor in chief of Back Channel. Yeah, and and I'm 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 a, I'm a Facebook, but I think a lot about Facebook. I just yeah. got back from Chicago, where Facebook did an event with all these community organizers and and the people who run the groups. Yeah, there and it was everything from fishing in Austin to serious groups about people who suffer from a given disease or groups for creative women of color. That yeah, was sure. A, 
I talked to a guy who's a gay dads group in, and he's based in Nashville, right? So, um, and Mark Zuckerberg was there, you know, talking about Facebook's new mission. And to me, it's just one more evolution of, you know, how he's operating. And then, you know, then he went off to a trip to visit truck stops and farms. I was going to say, then he started tweeting a lot about Iowa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or not tweeting, Facebooking a lot about Iowa. Yeah, not tweeting. <laughs> Definitely not tweeting. Um, wow. So you're writing a book, you're running Back Channel, and you're also writing for Back Channel and writing features for Wired yeah. and that kind of stuff. I haven't been in the workforce for quite as long, but did people used to work this much? I mean, that seems like an incredible workload. I don't think people, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if people work that much. I always work pretty hard. Yeah. But maybe you, you, you did some math and figured out that I'm not that young a person. And <laughs> but I thought, and, I thought, I thought you were covering hackers when you were in uh, grade school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I just made a decision at a certain point that what I'm doing is I can't imagine anything more interesting there, right? So yeah. I'm just going to, you know, well, you know, I'm feeling healthy. I'm feeling good. I'm going to dive in and, and, and do as much as, as I can to learn more about this amazing world and amazing time. Do you think that as someone who's not as young as many of the people that you're covering? That, that's a nice way to put it. I like that. <laughs> I mean... Do you get like, hey, old man, when you're covering people? Do you, does, does the age <laughs> distinction? They don't say that. Uh, well, I, I mean, a lot of these companies don't have many people over the age of 30 working. Yeah, well, at, at Medium, I was by far the oldest person. Right? Yeah. But I think I'm lucky enough to have established myself a little. Yeah. So they don't, you know, look at me and say, you know, hmm, this person, you know, is, is older than a lot of people that work here. Yeah. Uh, instead, they, Say, oh, it's Stephen Levy. So yeah, uh, I mean, I guess on the flip side of that, you can say things like Steve Jobs once told me, "No, no, personally, like Steve Jobs, I knew Steve Jobs." <laughs> um, I try not to do that, but people people do ask, and yeah, yeah but it actually, it's the stories about like Bruce Springsteen or seeing Jimi Hendrix, which impresses people more. <laughs> <laughs> so beyond Facebook, which is a current project. What are the stories that are really exciting to you looking into the future? If you were going to like sell a book that comes out in 10 years or something like that, what are the things you're really tracking as a, as a reporter? Well, I mean, I think one interesting subject to me is sort of the nature of reality, which I think is poised to change very dramatically. Right now, the technology is really clunky. It's kind of like the way computers were in the early 1980s, you know, hard to use and, you know, awkward. But I think augmented reality, virtual reality, stuff which bypasses our wet senses and the meat space. goes to our brains you know, and figures out how to make our brains think that something is real is really going to be important and a big part of existence at some point in the future. Well, uh, thank you very much for this interview. It was great. Thank you. It was fun. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Stephen Levy. Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor was Janelle Pfeiffer. Our associate producer, Courtney Harrell. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Autumn, Babel, Rover, and of course, MailChimp. You can send us a line at editors at longform.org if you need to get in touch. Otherwise, we'll see you back next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.